If I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, my name's Joe, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Central City. And uh, we've been on a little journey here at Central City. We've been uh, looking at a number of uh, current events, um, headlines. And uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've looked at things that are just happening in the world, uh, many things that are uh, uh, divisive, uh, things that people disagree on. And I'm sure we haven't said anything from up front that you uh, didn't disagree with um, during this series. Uh, that, that didn't happen, right? Uh, but we've talked about things like the deep political divide between the left and the right. Uh, we've talked about Black Lives Matter, uh, immigration, and then last week Alyssa uh, gave a, a talk on the Me Too movement. And I recommend if you haven't, if you missed a Sunday or whatever, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of these uh, podcasts, especially I would say Alyssa's talk on the Me Too movement. I know it impacted quite a few people, and I recommend that. Um, now, there are so many other current events that we could talk about. In fact, people asked me, uh, as we are getting into the series, well, are you going to talk about gun control? Uh, are you going to talk about human sexuality? Are you going to talk about uh, education, uh, health care? All of these things are worthy of more than one sermon. Um, obviously, though, we can't spend time. I mean, we could be in this series for an entire year, and, and that's not what God has for us. So today is the, is the last uh, sermon in this series, um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to shift a little bit. So instead of talking about uh, some of the things that have been in the headlines, I want us to begin thinking about what the headlines could be if we did something different. So here's the question we're going to ask, and this is a question we're going to actually ask you to respond to. Uh, let's put up the question here. If someone was to write a story about our church, our neighborhood, our city, our country in five years, so five years from now, what would you want the headline to be? And what should we be doing right now to ensure that it happens? So at the end of the sermon, don't, you don't have to do it yet, but you got a marker and you got a, a, a blank piece of paper, an odd-shaped paper maybe. Um, that's what we're going to use it for to respond to this question. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more so you have a little bit more context, but I want you to begin wrestling with that and begin thinking about that. The other thing that I want to do today is I want to give you one more tool, just one more lens to kind of wrestle with current events, especially the ones we haven't had time to talk about. So just whatever the issue is for you, that, man, I wish they would have done a sermon on that. You can be thinking about that in this sermon, uh, in this series, in this particular sermon, and we're going to look at it. So to do that, we're going to spend some time in the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to look at two chapters in Luke. We're going to look at Luke chapter 18 and Luke chapter 19, and we're going to do it in reverse order. So we're going to start with Luke chapter 19. You can go there if you want. Now, all around the world, Christians uh, have gathered this Sunday to celebrate something that we've been celebrating as long as Easter. Uh, it's the Sunday before Easter. It has a special uh, name. Any, anyone, anyone know what it is? Palm Sunday. Yeah, not this kind. Bad joke, but this kind. Uh, Palm, Palm Sunday. Um, and uh, uh, this, week, uh, this week we're moving into is called Holy Week. So if you didn't grow up in the church, I'll, I'll explain that a little bit. It, it, it contains some of the most pivotal moments in our Christian faith. I mean, this is a week where Jesus teached some of his most profound teachings. It's where he offered communion for the first time, which we're going to celebrate at the end of the service. It's where he washed his disciples' feet and, and turned the whole order of what it means to love other people. It's where he died on the cross. It's where he rose again. We're going to celebrate that next week at Easter. So this week is Holy Week, where we remember that final week of Jesus' life before he died and rose again. Well, all of those things that are pivotal to our faith happen in the city of Jerusalem. And Palm Sunday is the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. 
So Jesus had spent a lot of time in Jerusalem off and on, but most of his ministry was actually in the northern part of Israel. So as he's entering into this week, he's coming down from the north to the south of Israel, and he's entering into, into Jerusalem, and uh, people caught word of this. Now, Jesus had gathered somewhat of a name for himself. I mean, you don't feed 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread or turn water into wine without becoming somewhat popular. So people heard he's coming to Jerusalem, and they go out to meet him, and uh, something happens. So here's uh, a map. Uh, he, he's going to enter into Jerusalem from the east. And so you've got the, the, the Mount of Olives there, and then you've got the, the old city of Jerusalem. And he's coming in from the east, and uh, he climbs up on this hill, and this whole crowd has come because they heard this famous prophet, this famous rabbi, is, is coming to Jerusalem. So they, they came, and they came, and they, they waved palm branches. Now, you're probably familiar with that, right? If you grew up in the church, you were probably awkwardly prayed around with one of these. Maybe it wasn't awkward for you, it was just for me. It's like there's absolutely nothing worse in church than to force our kids to do things for adult satisfaction. And it happens all the time. Because, and maybe, and you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm a dad now, so I'm probably going to subject Finn to it at some point. Like just make them come up front. And it was probably good for me and I get it and all of that. But anyways, you probably did that waving your palm branches in. But here's the thing. The palm branches, they waved them because they were the national symbol of Israel. So don't think palm branch, that's a little wacky, a little goofy. Why would you wave palm branches? Why would you lay palm branches on the floor? They were the national symbol of Israel. So imagine instead a parade where everyone's out there waving their American flag. Right? That's what's going on here. Right? So they're, they're out there, and they, they, this, this person, this prophet, this rabbi by the name of Jesus is coming. And, and because they're waving this, these palm branches, what do you think they want from him? They're looking for a king. A king. In fact, this is what they say, Luke 19, 38. He says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the heights. He says, blessed is the king, the one who's going to bring us peace. They're looking for peace. In, uh, in Hebrew culture, peace meant more than just a world without war. The Hebrew word for it would have been shalom, and it's much more substantial than just a world without conflict. It meant an overwhelming well-being in the world. So think about all that is wrong with the world, and it's the one thing most humans agree with. We don't agree how to fix the problems, but most people agree there is a problem. You look, think about all, peace is when those are all solved. Shalom is when all things have been made right and, and every single person, regardless of who they are, regardless of their income, everyone has what they need, everyone's taken care of, people aren't fighting, people aren't at odds with each other, There's reconcil- this is shalom. And they're saying, blessed is the king, come and bring us shalom. So you've heard this story if you grew up in church, um, but I wonder if you've heard the whole story. Because nestled in this story, in this parade, in this political parade of sorts, this Palm Sunday story, is this short little scene right at the end. So let's go there. Imagine with me, the people are yelling. We've all been to parades. They're excited. They're waving. They're, they've lined the streets. And it's almost like in this story, in the Gospel account of Luke, it's almost like the, the camera zooms in on the face of Jesus for a close-up. Imagine it. The the voices in the crowds become muffled, and Jesus is standing there, and he offers a little monologue. I don't know if he's saying it to the crowds or if he's just saying it to the disciples or just even to himself as the crowds. I can't imagine he got everyone quiet enough to hear what he had to say, but he's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he looks across the valley to Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. 
In fact, this is what he would have seen. He would have seen something like this. Just, you can imagine Jesus standing. Now, this is modern-day Israel, so there wouldn't have been skyscrapers or a lot of these buildings, but you get the idea. He's standing at about this spot on the Mount of Olives, and he's looking over the valley, and he sees Jerusalem, and the camera moves on on his face, and all of a sudden we see with this close-up of Jesus, tears begin to fall out of his eyes. He begins weeping. One of the only places. Here, and one of it, when his friend Lazarus died. He cries. Luke 19, 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you even know, if you, even you, had only know, known on this day what would bring you peace, the thing they were asking for, right? Shalom. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Isn't that the world we live in? Oh, if we only knew how to bring about shalom, make things right, but you don't, you can't, we can't see it, it's hidden from our eyes. He sees Jerusalem, and he's just like, oh, Jerusalem, if only you knew. <laughs> he sees the city, the city he loves, the city that represents the people of Israel, his people. If only you knew, people, what would bring you peace, shalom, the very thing that they're asking for, if only you knew the way to peace, if only you knew how to make things right. But, but friends, they had no idea, just like many of us just like me at times. They didn't know. And because of that, because they didn't know the way to peace, it wouldn't go well for them. Jesus goes on and he lays out exactly what's going to happen and very accurately what's going to happen. Verse 43, he's standing and he's looking over the city of Israel and he says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you do not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Can you imagine? Jesus shows up and there's literally a parade. Like people are excited. Come king, bring us peace. And Jesus is like, you know what? This is not going to end well for you all. You, are, you don't understand the way to peace and it's going to be your destruction. Here's the worst part of this. It's, it's true, and it's, it happens. Forty years after Jesus spoke these words, the Israelites would rise up. They'd find another king because Jesus ended up not being the king they wanted. They would gather an army, and they would take up their swords, and they would stand against the Romans who were occupying Israel, and they would fight, and they would, fi they would fight for their peace. But that wouldn't last long. The Rome, in an attempt to make a point, to uh, make an illustration of them, they would come, they would siege Jerusalem, eventually invade Jerusalem, and completely destroy the city just as Jesus talked about. This, is, this actually happens. This isn't, I'm not telling a story. This, like, this is in the history books. And Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed, and women, children, and families were killed, and their city was destroyed. And Jesus knew this was going to happen because they didn't understand the way to peace. And so he looks over the city, a city he loves, and he cries because he knows where it's headed, and it breaks his heart. One of the reasons we're doing a series called Headlines is because as we've talked with people, there is a growing number of people 
um, on both sides of the spectrum, and this isn't new to history. We've all uh, been here at different times in, in our history as a nation, in the history of the world, where people are, like Jesus, very deeply worried about where we're headed. And they look over our city, over our country, and we're moved to tears and brokenness because we're like, I, we're worried about where it's going. And you might not feel that way, but I've met many people who have, and so I'm, I'm sure you have as well. So if you've ever felt that way, Jesus has too, so he can relate. And Jesus stood on the edge of the city that he loved, and he became overwhelmed with the sorrow because he knew where it was headed. Now, this is the worst part, friends. As he stands on the border of the city, looking over the skyline, he, um, he has to be overcome with this fact that in the coming week, he would teach some of his most profound teachings. He would institute the Lord's Supper. He would wash his disciples' feet. He would literally die on the cross and raise again. He would enter into Jerusalem to do all of these things. This week would change the world, but it would do nothing to change the political trajectory of Jerusalem. Forty years from that moment, it would still be destroyed. Jerusalem, its leaders, and its people would go on looking for a Messiah of their choosing. And they would come with a sword and an army to revolt and fight, and as a result, they would be destroyed. And nothing Jesus did that week would change that reality. Jesus would change the world, but he wouldn't change the political trajectory of the city he loved. Imagine, if you will, what that must have felt like. To give literally everything you have only to see uh, the things remain pretty much the way they were amongst those you love. How terribly discouraging. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? Um, if you haven't, then you, you haven't tried to change the world. Because <laughs> if you try to change the world, you're going to feel that way. You're going to give and you're going to give and you're going to give and you're going to wonder if it's even making a difference. When you think about the, the issues that you're passionate about, the headlines that you wish could change, what if you gave everything you had to change those headlines and nothing seemed to change, at least on the surface? Would you still do it? Would you still enter the city and give your life if you knew that it might not change every city and it might not change every person? Would you still show people the way to peace even if they were unable to see it? Hold on to that question. Because I think Jesus offers an answer to that question. He offers the answer in one chapter before this. So this is the moment where we actually go to the other passage. Um, uh, just one page or two before the story of Palm Sunday, before he gets to the Mount of Olives and looks over Jerusalem, he tells us what his answer to this question would be. So if you want to do that, you can turn there. If you're following along in a paper version of the Bible, and I don't know if anyone still uh, brings those to church, but you can just turn back a page or just swipe back on your app to Luke chapter 18. Let's read it. It says this. So then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So right there, we know what this parable is going to be about, right? He, he tells us right ahead, ahead of time. He's like, this parable is about how you should always pray and how you should not 
give up. So I want you to consider. I want you to consider the issue that's closest to your heart. If you were struck by the Me Too movement, the sermon that we talked about that, I want you to consider that. If if you were struck by the immigration talk, I want you to consider that. If it's issues of homelessness or poverty or income inequality, consider that. If it's racism, if it's issues relating to the LGBTQ community, if it's healthcare, if it's education, whatever is your thing, the thing that breaks your heart, I want you to think about that thing. Um, The thing that seems impossible to change, the thing that you want to stop praying about and the thing you want to give up on, think about that um, when we read this parable. Verse 2, it says this. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. So there's two characters in this story. Um, We have a judge and we have a widow. So let's talk about those a little bit so we get some context. First is the judge. Now, judges in Israel, they didn't have a jury. So they kind of had the final say when issues of conflict arose uh, in 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 the cities or in their villages. The judge had the final say. So in Scripture, if you study the the work of the judge, um, they have very specific qualifications. And the qualifications basically are the judge should really care about what God thinks and really care about people, right? Like the judge should be really concerned with what's right, right? That's the ideal, for a judge, which I'll say is the ideal for anyone in a place of power, isn't it? But that's the ideal. So Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a judge who's not like that, who doesn't care what God thinks and doesn't care what people think. So that's the story of this judge. He's a bad judge, but he's still the judge, which means he still has all the power. The case brought before him by this widow, it was his to do what he wanted with it, right? So we have this judge who doesn't care, but who has all the power. The second character is the widow. Now, the thing you need to know about widows in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible says to care for widows, orphans, and foreigners. I, I was going to tell you how many times, and I got tired of counting. I had better things to do. But it's, it's more than I wanted to count on two, on two hands. So over and over again, Scripture says you need to care for the widows. And because the reason is because the way the ancient world worked is widows, orphans, and foreigners didn't own land. So if, if a widow, if someone was married to somebody who owned land and maybe had a house and maybe had cattle, and that person uh, died and they became a widow, then the land and the house and the cattle would all go to either her son, if she had one of age, or back to the husband's family, to his brother or nephew. But someone on the husband's family, the land and the house stayed with them. So the widow, if justice wasn't served, the widow would essentially become homeless. So scripture says you have to care for the widow because otherwise they're going to be lost. They can't, if, if the system, if the government, if the, the structure in that community doesn't do something to care for the widow, then she won't survive. So in this story, the judge has power and the widow is the vulnerable one to whatever the judge decides. So we have a person with power and we have a person who's vulnerable. I mean, and she's extremely vulnerable. And and in this situation, she has an adversary. She's probably trying to get the husband's family who passed away to care for her. It's most likely the conflict here. And so she has to go to the judge to get the judge to stand up for her. And he doesn't care, right? We already know this about him. So she's vulnerable and he has the power. So let's, let's pause. I want you to think about the issue that's on your heart. 
and ask yourself this question. With whatever issue you've thought of, who is the vulnerable one and who has the power? Because how we answer that question really kind of determines quite a bit where we stand on the issue. Who's the vulnerable one and who has the power? In fact, the big thing we disagree, as you disagree with people on Facebook, I'm sure you never do that, but as you disagree with people on Facebook and I, and we wrestle and we debate these issues um, across the political spectrum, one of the things we disagree on is who's vulnerable and who actually has the power. So just as an illustration, just to kind of help you see what I'm talking about, consider immigration. We already did a sermon on it. You can go listen, get my take on immigration, but just consider it. Some look at immigrants as the people who are vulnerable. And our government as the one who, with its government laws and restrictions, as the one with the power. And those who tend to view the immigrant as vulnerable and the government as the one with the power tend to have a lot more compassion for the immigrant. Now, but if you go to the other side of the spectrum, other people view the immigrant as the one who actually has the power. There's fear of violence. There's fear of taking away people's jobs. And so the immigrant has the power and our national security is at risk. It's the one that's vulnerable or our job market's vulnerable. Do you see what I'm saying? So who you determine as the vulnerable one versus the one who has the power kind of places you already in, in the context of the issue. And that's one of the things we actually disagree on. So, so here's the thing that I want you to, to think about. Who does God see as the one with the power, and who does God see as the one who's vulnerable? Not you, not other people. What's God's take on it? Here's my general rule. You might not like it, but here's my general rule. When asking who's vulnerable, remember this. God cares more about people than governments, systems, or institutions. I guarantee you. I mean, just, I guarantee it. Don't, I mean, you can argue with me if you want about it, but you're going to lose. God cares more about people than governments, nations. Scripture says nations are going to rise and fall, you know. They're temporary. People are who God really cares about. So if you're answering the question, who's the vulnerable one in this situation, and it's not a person, I'm going to challenge you. Reevaluate think it through. Now, that doesn't fix all of our disagreements, because it actually still is very complicated in how it plays out, but I promise you this, God cares about people, and people are the ones who are often very vulnerable. So in this story, the widow is the one who's vulnerable, and that's a setup, and the widow needs the judge, the wicked judge who doesn't care about her. She needs him to do something about her situation. So let's look at what happens. You won't be surprised by this. Verse 4, it says, for some time he refused. (laughs) Oh, dear. Someone who's vulnerable needs help, and the person in power doesn't care about God or what's right, and so what? They do nothing. We've heard this story over and over again, haven't we? And for some, that's, the, that's, the, that's where the story ends, isn't it? The widow gives up. We give up. What's the point? Why even go into Jerusalem? It's not going to change anything. Why take up the cross and, and work and give and sacrifice? What's the point? And so we stop and we give up, and that's where the story ends. I've seen this over and over again just a week, uh, just this week, two different friends. Right as I was studying this passage, uh, one called and one text literally at the same time, and both of them 
were in very difficult situations that required them to go and get government assistance, like not government assistance, so they had to go talk to government officials to get this problem in their life fixed. One of them is my friend who uh, used to live outside, used to be homeless, and uh, he, he, he kind of figured out his money situation. He's still figuring that out, but he's figured it out enough to move into an apartment, and after living there for two months, he gets an eviction notice. Now, he claims the charges that were brought against him are false. Um, that's complicated. We'll get into it. But he says they're false, and, and so he, he tells me what he's doing. He's really distraught. He's very broken up over it, and he's talking to me on the phone. He, you can tell he just wants to give up, and he's talking about how he has to go get police records and how he has to go to PIP and PACO and all agencies I don't even know existed. I mean, this guy knows more about how our government works than I do because he's trying to figure out how to keep his, his home. And so in the midst of his desperation, he tells me something that really breaks my heart. He says, you know, I don't mind. I, I kind of want to go move back to the woods. It's a lot easier in some ways than dealing with all of this. I kind of want to go move back to the woods, but my, my girlfriend's pregnant and she can't live out there. They were, but she can't. And so he's vulnerable and he has to address and figure out some sort of person in power gets to decide whether he's evicted or not. And he, you know, he can't afford another down payment or all of these sorts of things. And I, I promise you he can relate to this parable because there's times where he just wants to give up. But this parable is different. Look, look at the rest of verse 4. It says this, But finally he said to himself, says, For a while I didn't do anything, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God, I care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Uh, either he's a wimp and he's scared of this widow, or, you know, some people say this is actually literal. This is boxing language, by the way. It says, so you won't come and attack me. It literally, the, the literal translation is, so she won't come and smack me under the eye, um, which is a great thing to imagine, right? Not the advice I gave my friend, for the record. Don't punch a judge. Just... If you don't get anything else out of the sermon, don't do that. Um, most people take this as, as figurative. The, the idea is that she, she keeps going back, and she keeps, she's persistent, and she keeps bothering him, and it's the, the way in which she keeps going back that's just beating him down. And he says, I don't care what God thinks, and I don't care what people think, and I don't care about her, but because she won't leave me alone, I'm going to finally give her what's right. So she keeps trying, and she keeps fighting, and it's persistence. It changes her situation. It's persistence that brings about justice. She doesn't even change the, catch this, she doesn't even change the heart of the judge. judge the judge doesn't change in this scenario. She just wears him down. And he goes on being the corrupt judge he's always been. We don't know anything else about him in this hypothetical parable story. But she doesn't get justice because she's changed his heart. She's just persistent. So that's why I told my friend, I just told him, you can't give up, you know, especially when you want to, no matter, no matter how vulnerable you feel or how powerless you feel to your circumstances. And if you've never felt powerless to your circumstances, you haven't lived long enough. And so I say, you just got to do the next step. You just got to do whatever, what's the next thing you need to do? You just have to keep going and do the next thing. And you need to start praying, start praying like it's your job because it is. And it's that kind of persistence that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. He says in verse 6, he says, And the Lord said, listen to what the, the unjust judge says. 
And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who, who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? No. That's the implication. No, God's not going to keep putting you off. If the unjust judge will do what's right because someone won't leave him alone, how much more will God? Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the world is going to change, your situation is going to change because people, normal, vulnerable, powerless people will keep pressing into God and into those who have the power. They keep going and they keep praying. Persistence. So that's what I told my friend, that's, and that's what I tell you. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're passionate about, no matter what, what burdens your heart, the best thing you can do is the next thing. And don't give up. And if you do, here's, here's what's going to happen. Verse 8, it says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly, which is so kind of funny of Jesus, because he just told the story about how justice doesn't come quickly, and how you have to keep going after it, and after it, and after it, until you don't want to do it anymore, but you keep pestering the people in power, and you keep going back to God in prayer. And then he says, but if you do that, and you spend a lot of time doing it, then justice will come to you quickly. And I'm like, I don't even know how, that, I don't even know how to make sense of that. I mean, I guess like when God moves, it's fast. But then he asks a different question. He says, however, when the Son of Man comes, when justice is brought, will he find faith on the earth? He says, when I actually bring it and things change, will there be anyone left who actually believed it was going to happen? Will there be anyone left who, who was still holding on, still persisting, trusting that justice was coming? Because friends, when life gets hard and the world seems to fall apart around you, it's really easy to just want to say, this isn't going to change. It's hard to believe that, that shalom is even possible, that, that things can be made right. It's hard to believe that God is going to actually move and work. But it's when it's the hardest to believe, that's when we need to hold on. That's the kind of faith Jesus wants his disciples to have. That's the kind of faith that Jesus had. He looked out over Jerusalem and he cried. He knew where the city was headed. He knew it. He knew they would do the same thing they've always done and it would produce the same results and it would produce more death and more war and more destruction. And yet knowing that didn't stop Jesus from entering into Jerusalem, teaching them, loving them, healing them, taking up the cross, dying and rising again. He knew that even with life's many ups and downs and the ways that nations rise and fall, that his work and his teaching and his death and his resurrection was the way to peace. And maybe Jerusalem wouldn't see it, but others would. Surely others, others would. Someone would catch a glimpse of what Jesus' life could do to change the world and to change communities, and they did. People, not everyone, not every city, but, but enough caught on, and this movement began to spread, and the way of peace began to spread, and it began to change the world. Friends, I'm going to suggest something really bold, that, that almost every major human, humanitarian advancement, what it means to care for the vulnerable, um, was built in some way on the teachings of Jesus. The end of slavery 
in the West was led by the church. The equal rights movement was led by the church. Healthcare was invented by the church. I don't know if you know this, but before they had the ability to cure people, Christians were like, hey, we should probably love people who are terminally ill. And they, they came up with this idea of hospice and actually caring for people even though they couldn't do anything to fix them. Christians came up with that idea, which is why you, it's hard to find a hospital without some sort of saint in its title or Christian root. Education, led by the church. Human rights, led poverty alleviation. I, I haven't heard of too many orphanages that, that, that were started by someone who at least didn't appreciate the teachings of Jesus, if, not the, if at least they were a follower of Jesus. The church, with all of its mistakes, because sometimes the church is on the other side of the, the fight too, isn't it? But the church, with all of its mistakes and miscomings, it, it has started and led the way in many of these issues. Anytime you talk about a vulnerable population in any part of the world, I'm going to bet you, not a lot of money and I'm not supposed to gamble, but I'm going to bet you that I could probably find somebody within walking distance who claims to be a follower of Jesus. You point to a vulnerable group of people and there's probably somebody who's trying to make a difference. And they might not be doing it well, they might not even be doing it in a way that I would agree with, but they're there and they keep going and they keep praying and you see this over and over again. Jesus' followers would change the world one person at a time. And Jesus' teaching and his death and his resurrection would make things different, and it still can. So when you look over our city, our world, maybe there's times we want to cry. When you consider the homeless or the broken or the hurting, the drug addicts, when you consider the college students, I just read an article about this, the college students who, who want to take their life because they come out as gay and, and, and they've been rejected by society and especially by the church. When you think of children who've been shot in schools and you think about the hate and you think about the violence, when you look out over the city and you consider all the headlines, maybe you might just want to you find yourself crying like Jesus, worried about where things are headed. Maybe you feel like the widow who can't seem to get anyone in power to listen to her, and you just want to give up. If that's you, don't give up. Change can happen. It's slow, and it's painful, but it can happen. So friends, don't lose heart, or evil has already won. If we lose heart, if we give up, then evil has already won because the only chance of real change is those who are faithful to the Lord remain faithful and persistent for justice for the vulnerable. So we can't lose heart, but we have to set our eyes towards the future. And we have to believe. Well, Jesus makes things right. Will there be anyone left who actually believed it could happen? So I want to end by asking the question that we started with. I want to challenge you to step up in faith and and be as bold to, to proclaim and to dream a future that is different, one that is better. So here's the question, and I think an appropriate way to end this series. If someone was to write a story about our church, our neighborhood, our city, our country in five years, what would you want that headline to be? And what can you do right now to ensure that that happens? If you could control the future, which you don't, for the record, but if you could and you could make things right and bring shalom to whatever area you're passionate about, what would it look like? What would the new stories look like? We came up with a few just to give you an idea of what we're talking about. Would the article look like this? You know, there's uh, been an increase in the number of international festivals across the U.S. <laughs> or like this, 
Columbus churches adopt homeless families, providing support while finding stable housing options. Or to be this, human trafficking at an all-time low and church celebrates with survivors. Someone said when they saw these earlier that these are, headlines are too long, and I'm like, what? We're not, writer. we're not writing, you know, like, we're not good at this. You don't have to be good at it either. We're just dreaming. We're just dreaming. Or is it like this? The first time in American business, women and men reach equal pay. Or is it something else? If you could write the headline for your preferred future of the world, of our church, of our city, what would it be? So when you came in, you would have gotten a piece of newsprint. Um, uh, just, it might have been a square. It might have looked uh, like one of these uh, random cuts. Um, I want to give you just a couple of minutes. I'm going to invite a couple of the musicians up to play a little bit of music. We're going to spend just a couple of minutes reflecting. I'm going to ask you to actually take the black marker and write on this newsprint a headline. What would the headline be? In a little bit, we're going to invite you to come forward if you want to take communion. We're going to have you come, and I'll give you instructions then as well, and come forward, and you'll take communion, and then you'll go back to sit. But I'm going to invite you to actually write down a, a headline and bring it forward, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to set it on a little music stand that will be there. And then uh, uh, Meredith, our, 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 our artist this morning, is going to take those headlines and make a collage to paint a picture of, of the future we want to see happen and the role that we're going to play in it. So I'm just going to give you a couple minutes to reflect, and then I'll come back up and we'll, we'll walk through communion and you can bring the headline forward.